funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What is the cost of keeping tens of thousands of American teenagers behind bars, some for crimes as minor as shoplifting or truancy? While rates of juvenile incarceration have fallen by more than 40 percent over the past two decades, large numbers of young people still serve time in the United States and upon their release are statistically more likely to commit new crimes than their peers diverted from lockup for similar offenses. States spend an average of $88,000 a year to incarcerate each teenage convict, even as public education budgets are being slashed. And as my guest today has learned, few young offenders emerge from their time behind bars unscathed by physical or sexual violence or emotional trauma. Journalist Nell Bernstein writes about this in her new book, Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. Nell, welcome to Think. Very glad to be here. We should note off the top that these places are actually never called juvenile prisons. Why did you feel so strongly about using that term anyway? Well, it was one of those things that I came to during my research. They're called, you know, they've been called everything from houses to refu- of refuge to farms to boys' academies to schools for youth. But when I, when I visited them, the first thing that I saw was a double coil of razor wire. And when I went inside, what I saw were children in prison uniforms locked inside cells. And it became unacceptable for me to use these obfuscating euphemisms when what I was seeing were kids in prison. Are are the kids who are there separated according to age or size or, or offense? Well, you know... There's not a lot of consistency state to state, but the bottom line is no. Hmm. For instance, I interviewed a 10-year-old who was sent to the California Youth Authority where he mixed with young men up to 24 because at that time that was the cutoff in California. Um, So, yeah, you can have a very low-level, nonviolent 12-year-old kid in with a 24-year-old who's been convicted of homicide, absolutely. Wow. And I guess the thinking is that it makes some sense to, you know, have a, an older teenager who was sentenced to stay out of the full adult prisons, but, but they grow into adulthood when they're in these facilities. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Where are these places located relative to, say, metropolitan areas? Um, well, siting is, is a big problem. They, they tend to be sited quite intentionally in remote rural areas, that need the jobs and where land is cheap. In fact, uh, these regions will lobby for the the building of a prison in their region and in some cases lobby quite hard against some of the closures that have been happening. It also creates a difficulty for kids' families who want to visit, but it also creates a cultural divide because often these are mainly white regions and the kids we lock up are mainly youth of color. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. You note that the overwhelming majority of American teenagers will admit to having done at least one thing that could theoretically get them sentenced to a place like this, um, which is so eye-opening given that we don't think that most teenagers are all that bad and we assume most of them will turn out just fine. But the thing is, that's the, fa- that's the truth. Most teenagers will commit an act that could get them locked up, and that includes us adults, mm-hmm. most as teenagers, most teenagers are just fine and will be just fine. You know, what I, what I learned from that 
research was that it's not like there's two kinds of kids, the delinquents and the good kids. Delinquency is really a developmental phase, and it's part of you know the risk-taking and lack of ability to foresee consequences that are just part of adolescent brain development. And those kids who are allowed to just grow out of it, mainly white kids who aren't poor, do tend to do fine. Those kids who are incarcerated, often for the same acts, don't do as well. In fact, it doubles the chances that they'll go on to adult prison. Hmm. Um, So you talk about this idea that we should consider these young people from the my child perspective so that we think about how we would feel about the conditions in these youth facilities if it were our kids who were locked up there. Yeah, that's a, a sort of a construct that comes from Bart Lubau at the Annie Casey Foundation, what he calls the My Child Test, that when we read about a particular disciplinary procedure, for example, say long-term solitary confinement, which is very common for youth, when we read about guards setting dogs on unresisting boys or see videotapes of it as we do when we think about not just the abuses inside these facilities but the day-to-day conditions would this be acceptable for my child if he had done something to warrant being there and if the answer is no we really can't justify allowing it for other people's children because these aren't other people's children they're no different from our kids On the second or third page of the book, you describe what orientation is like for a first-timer in one of these facilities, Um, not least of which is the people who are in the sort of guard roles explaining the kinds of bad things that are going to happen, but but that the the fact that they probably won't die. Right. I, I remember the passage you're talking about. It was a young man who said that at orientation they were told, tell me if I have this right, you know, you'll probably get a tooth broken you know, you'll get bloodied, you get, might get an arm broken, but you're not going to die, so you'll be all right. That's terrifying to be to, to walk into a place like that. I mean, it's, you know, high school can be scary enough for many of these kids. You know, that's a really good point. Um, it, it's, uh, a lot of people ask me if I was scared going into these places, you know, as if, as if a crime were going to be committed against me. And what I, what I usually say is, when you walk onto the floor and meet the kids, it's really like walking onto a trauma ward. If you're there to talk to them and listen to them, what you hear are just stories of tremendous trauma both before and after their incarceration. But the fear that I felt, it wasn't inspired by the kids. It was inspired by the buildings, and I never got over it. When you drive through a double coil of razor wire, check in at a guard station, go through a metal detector, and then enter this very cold institutional environment where there may be signs on the wall saying this facility uses pepper spray. Even though I understood that I was not going to be locked up, it's all meant to inspire fear, and it does. What are these kids there for? Well, of course, there's a range. Um, But what's happened is in the 90s, you know, we passed a series of laws that either requires or allows for the transfer of kids who've committed the really serious offenses, you know, homicide or carjacking and that sort of thing. They're primarily now transferred into the adult system. 
So what you have left is sort of um, an inflationary effect at the juvenile prisons. And I'm talking about the state juvenile facilities, by the way, not the county juvenile halls. I, I think the, the majority of kids are there for nonviolent offenses, and about 40% are there for what they call nonviolent, non-serious offenses. So that might be running away or graffiti or getting caught with a joint. Um, so these are the things that I think many kids do during their adolescence, but poor kids of color end up you know, in these quite serious locked institutions for doing. And is that because they don't have access to good lawyers or because judges assume that sort of remitting them to the custody of their parents will not do the trick? Why, what separates the kids who get, who get uh, sent behind bars from those who are let go? Well, I, you know, I think that that depends on one's perspective about racial injustice mm-hmm. uh, and whether it is or is not intentional. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that one be. But um, I, I will say that what researchers have found is that at every decision-making point, from who gets picked up by police, for instance, my teenagers don't live in a neighborhood where police are driving up and down the street and will probably not have their pockets searched if they're hanging out with their friends. So from that point through who gets detained after an arrest, versus who gets sent home, through who gets sentenced to probation or an alternative or nothing, as opposed to who gets locked up, all the way through who gets their probation violated and gets sent back. Researchers have found not just racial differences, but racial disproportionality. In other words, take a a white kid and a black kid who have committed the same act, control for as many things as you can, and you'll still find that the black kids are locked up at a rate of four and a half or five times that of white kids. And, you know, people say that, but they put a period after it. The sentence really has to continue. They're locked up at four and a half or five times the rate of white kids for the same offenses. Hmm. And I think those decisions aren't made just by one person. It's sort of escalates as you go through the system. And because there are multiple factors playing into it, it's like everybody has plausible deniability. Well, you know, you're exactly right. For instance, the issue that you raised about what kind of home a kid has to go back to. If a family is living in poverty, they may not have the resources to provide drug treatment and mental health treatment and whatever else a judge may say this kid needs. So he may be sent And I think this is one of the great fallacies. He may be sent to a juvenile detention facility to receive these services, Uh, but he doesn't receive them in any serious way. And even if he does, he's further traumatized by the experience. So so you're right, and that's a really good point. What kinds of rules dictate how teenage inmates live in these places? How they live? Yeah. Um, well, you know, <laughs> almost every moment of their day is regimented. And I, to understand the effect of this, I had a researcher who had spent six years in the California Youth Authority and is now a, a UC Berkeley student. 
And he said it was very hard for him to function when he got out because, as you said, he was locked up as a young teenager, released as at least technically an adult. But while he was inside, when he brushed his teeth and for how long, uh, where and how he walked, they often walk in formation, sort of military style, with either their arms crossed behind their backs or what they call the chicken walk, where they cross their arms and put their hands under their armpits, how long they have to eat, whether and when they can shower, whether they can talk. He he would tell me about a call would go out, talk is dead, and that meant no talking throughout the facility. Hmm. And they weren't told why. So when he came out and enrolled in college, doing something as simple as asking why was very difficult for him. Because he hadn't had a chance to to experience really any freedom at all. Right. And when you think of the, the kind of main developmental tasks of adolescence, learning to make independent decisions, sometimes by making mistakes, learning to develop close relationships with others, figuring out your identity, and figuring out what you're going to do with your life, those are all pretty much foreclosed by the experience of isolation, an environment where trust is a liability, and this very regimented lifestyle. So they come out as adults, and if they don't pull it off, the stakes are very high because they may be on parole but they really haven't been given a chance to develop the skills of an adult. We're speaking with journalist Nell Bernstein about her new book, Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. You can join the conversation at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org, or you can send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu CAPE. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with journalist Nell Bernstein, author of Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372 or by emailing think at kera.org. Now, before the break, you were talking about the fact that part of the, the purpose of the teenage years is to be out in the world, to learn, sometimes by making mistakes. For people who are listening and saying, well, mistakes sometimes have consequences, particularly if you hurt someone else, I want to be clear that you're not suggesting that there be no interventions ever when a teenager has done something wrong. No, I'm absolutely not. Um, I think that there need to be interventions, and especially when somebody is hurt, those interventions need to come from the community because the, the kid is responsible to the community for the harm she's caused. Um, but I think they need to be interventions that at the very least sort of fall under the Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, interventions that don't make the problem worse. And there's, you know, even if you feel like these kids deserve maltreatment or whatever, there's a really strong body of evidence that juvenile incarceration is criminogenic. In fact, that the greatest predictor that any given child will wind up as an adult criminal and prisoner is not family structure or or mental illness or drug addiction. The single greatest predictor of adult incarceration is juvenile incarceration. It, It about doubles the chances that a kid will go on to be incarcerated as an adult. So if we're concerned about public safety, we need to think about the interventions that work. And many of those, even with quite serious offenders, are community-based, evidence-based interventions like functional family therapy or multisystemic therapy where the kid remains at home if it's safe to do so and has a caseworker working very intensively with him and his family because we also forget that kids do come back and they come back to the same family. And if there are problems there that haven't been addressed, in fact, you know, have been just sort of brushed under the rug because that kid is gone for a few years, that's also kind of a setup. Mm-hmm. So the interventions that have the highest success rates are those that are community-based and work with the whole family. What did you learn about the kind of therapy that is offered to incarcerated teenagers? Well, there is a, a sort of trend toward therapeutic prisons or trying to kind of import therapeutic modalities into juvenile facilities. Um, And, you know, I I sort of thought that was a good idea going in, but when I visited some of these places, I think what I learned or what I concluded was that it's difficult, if not impossible, to create a truly therapeutic or healing relationship in an environment of control and power. The kids told me, for example, you know, and this is not a best case scenario, but this was in a California facility, that they would go to group therapy. Um, This was on a sex offenders unit, actually. And if they didn't reveal their innermost feelings and experiences to the degree that they were expected to, or if they did, but their story didn't match their police record, they would get written up, and that would lead to a time ad. So I think when there's a sense that if you don't do what you're told, even in therapy, you're going to get more time, that kind of ditches the endeavor. But even if you have a really good therapeutic program within a prison, kids go from that to this environment that, again, doesn't allow them to implement any of what they've learned. One kid said, I'm supposed to be in a family-centered therapeutic program, but I'm 600 miles from my family. Hmm. And and when they are away from, I guess, those therapists or whatever the program is, they really are not in a place that, that makes it easy to be vulnerable or even makes it safe to show any vulnerability. Well, that that's the bottom line. I mean, Over and over, kids told me that the first thing they learned, aside from the fact that they would likely have their teeth broken, was that trust was a liability. And that that 
was something that unfortunately applied both to the guards and to each other. Some kids did really make close friendships and sustain each other through an incarceration, but the culture was one in which, um, again, as Will, my researcher, told me, you'd get there and somebody would say, hey, bro, you know, here's a ramen noodle. I'll help you out. I'll take care of you. And the next week, that same guy would say, okay, you owe me. Now go shank this guy. Hmm. So you really learned to watch your back. And, well, I really learned a lot from Will I'm coming to see because he talked about how hard that made it to form intimate relationships when he got out. Uh, You know, in fact, even when he and I first started talking, he, he didn't want me to interview him because his assumption was that anybody who wanted something from him wanted something more or different from what they were telling him. Hmm. What a fascinating story he is. He's he's like now on a PhD track, right? Yeah, he's a he's a brilliant guy. Hmm. And so are a lot of the kids I met. Yeah. I mean that was that was one Oh sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask like were they were you able to be with them kind of often in a one-on-one setting and and did it take a while for them to recognize that they could trust you and and that you really genuinely wanted to hear their stories um well you know i'm in kind of a unique situation in writing this book because i've been working with young people for almost 20 years i spent a decade as the editor of a youth newspaper and Several of the kids that I interview in depth are young people I've known for a very long time. So, so there is that. Um, and then I, I did visit a number of juvenile facilities, juvenile prisons, but I also conducted a lot of interviews on the outside. Mm-hmm. On the inside, you know, I often was allowed to talk one-on-one with the kids. Sometimes they were hand-picked for me, occasionally not. We were never really in an environment of complete privacy. It was often a corner of the day room. But the truth is, I was kind of blown away by the degree to which they did want to talk to me. And not just about what was being done to them, you know, not just about how they'd been wronged, but about what they had done and the guilt they felt about it. And, you know, their their own desire to kind of somehow get out there and write the wrong they had done. Um, and I think that's because, you know, aside from these therapeutic interventions, nobody's asking these kids, what do you think? What's happened to you in your life? Why? So when a journalist comes in and does that, I think it, well, several kids told me it, it felt like therapy. Hmm. How did we come to the conclusion in this country, at least for a period of time, that our teenagers were so much to be feared? Well, you know, the the turning point on that came in the 1990s uh, with a book called Body Count, which introduced into the culture the notion of the super predator. And this was uh, a trio of very well-respected scholars who told us essentially that demography was destiny, that the youth population was growing, and they were very explicit about this. The black youth population in particular was growing. And as that happened, we could expect to see a wave of violent youth crime like nothing we'd experienced before. And the language was very extreme, soulless predators, 
you know, the idea was that these kids were kind of, well, wilding was the other phenomenon, that mm. they were animal packs, a lot of animal imagery. Um, and this this so-called phenomenon, and I say so-called because this crime wave did not manifest. In fact, juvenile crime has been dropping steadily since around that point. Uh, but the image I don't think ever left us, and it was illustrated in the mass media almost exclusively with images of glowering black teenage boys. And I think, well, for one thing, it hasn't left us because we passed some very punitive laws that are still on the books. But I think it it didn't create the fear of young people of color, but it really exacerbated it. I certainly saw it with the kids I was working with. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. The email address is think at org, and that's where we hear from John in Oak Cliff, who asks, what evidence is there that any of the judges sentencing kids to juvenile prisons have visited these facilities? That is a terrific question. Um, in fact, there were some hearings recently on solitary confinement where the the senator holding the hearings begged his colleagues, before you sign another law, before you make another decision about these places, please visit them. There have been a couple of judges lately, actually, I'm sorry, it was a governor who spent a night in a solitary cell. But um, there is not much evidence that judges have visited the places they're sending kids to. And there's also some evidence that they have some real misconceptions about the places they're sending kids to. I, the head of one state system told me she had gone to meet with judges who told her they were sending kids to her facilities for mental health care that they couldn't get for them anywhere else. And she said to them, I don't have any mental health care. I have one psychiatrist for my whole huge statewide system. And the judges just somehow weren't aware even of that. Are, are, uh, when children are violated in these places, um, sometimes it's at the hands of other inmates and sometimes it, it comes at the hands of guards. Is that yeah. what you found? I think that's another real misconception. I, I hear people sort of making don't drop the soap jokes, sometimes even when I mention the topic of my book. Uh, but the truth is about, and this comes from federal studies, which may well underestimate the problem. But according to the federal government, about 2% of all kids who are incarcerated will be sexually assaulted by other juvenile wards. 10% of all kids who are incarcerated will be sexually assaulted by guards or by those charged with their care. Hmm. So I think that's a, a big misconception and a real horror that we just haven't dealt with. So uh, what was your experience in terms of evaluating the people who work in these places? I I mean, I have to imagine that not everyone who gets a job there is savage and hates teenagers. How does this this happen? Yeah, I mean, that's the question that I struggled with, perhaps more than any other, because the administrators and guards whom I met were not only really well-intentioned, but my sense was they really understood the kids in a way that the general public doesn't because they knew them. Hmm. Um, 
so how does this happen? You know, how do we get situations where they're forcing kids to fight for their own entertainment or placing them in solitary, which is considered torture under international law or just, you know, pretty savagely beating them, sometimes killing them, as we're hearing about out of Dozier in Florida right now. Um, I don't have the answer to that, but the two things that helped me understand it were, one, again, Will, my researcher, explaining to me that they weren't human to the guards, Uh, that part of that was racial, but part of it had to do with the fact that they were in uniform, they were given numbers instead of names. They all had to follow the same rules. They had been so thoroughly dehumanized that I think, you know, you can tell yourself, when I prick them, they don't bleed. And then the other thing that helped me understand this abuse was um, Vinnie Schiraldi, who was then the head of probation in New York and had been the head of the juvenile system in Washington, D.C., talked about cognitive dissonance that you go in with good intentions, but then you see this stuff going on and you have to decide, do I report it? Do I keep quiet or do I participate? And you can't report it. You know, there's sort of a a code similar to that among police Hmm. where that would be a really risky thing to do. So now you're part of it and that's kind of morally corrosive. And the next time a kid really pisses you off, you're more likely to participate. That was the best explanation I heard. At the same time, there's a level of violence towards kids inside these facilities that I have to say is beyond my understanding. And some of this simply escapes attention by the general public because, um, as you can tell us, even as a journalist, it's pretty hard to access these facilities. And so these kids are are far away, and we just don't see what's happening to them. That's right. It's kind of a petri dish for uh, abuse. It's isolated. Media access can be strictly limited at the discretion of Um, of the facility, you've got this double power imbalance of prisoner and guard, and then on top of that, uh, yeah, and on top of that, youth and adult. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of the Stanford prison experiment, Mm. but people probably know about that. They set up a Petri dish where one group of students was made guards and the other prisoners, and they had to end the experiment early because the prisoner students were so abusive toward I'm sorry, the guard students were so abusive toward the prisoners' students. So on the one hand, I think you're right. The isolation allows us to not see it. But I do think it's a willful not seeing because these scandals, you know, in, I mean, in Texas, I'm sure you know, there was this huge sexual abuse scandal. They come and they're in the news and there's outrage and there are promises of reform. And then months or years pass and it all starts happening again. So we permit ourselves to be scandalized over and over again. And I think that's a way of not acknowledging that these scandals are actually the status quo. My guest is journalist Nell Bernstein, author of Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. We'll continue the conversation in a couple of minutes, and you can join us by emailing think at kera.org, by calling 1-800-933-5372, or by sending me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. 
Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with journalist Nell Bernstein about her book, Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. We have a tweet here from Sarah who asks, how has outsourcing, and I'm assuming she might mean privatizing, like we do in Texas, affected the safety of juveniles inside? Well, you know, there have been some... uh pretty serious allegations of abuses inside the the private prisons. Um, and certainly I think it's a moral problem that we can invest in, you know, kids' bodies on the open stock market. I don't see them as the heart of the problem nationally. Uh, I think that there's sort of a, a very explicit manifestation of the way that money operates to perpetuate this system. But I'm I'm just not sure that the publicly run institutions are that much better. Hmm. So I tend not to focus on those as the heart of the problem, although I do understand that that varies from state to state. And I, I think it's sort of morally problematic, definitely. I have to tell you, I was taken aback, now by the amount of money that states are spending um, and it's not to say that there's a dollar figure that says exactly how much you you should spend, but but we could we could be doing a lot with the kind of money that we put into incarcerating teenagers. It's stunning. I mean, the amount we put in is so high, and I'll talk about that. That we could be fixing some of the problems that inform juvenile delinquency, like poverty, like substandard education, like non-existent mental health care. It, it really is not, it's not separate. The national average is 88000 a year to keep a kid in a state juvenile prison and increase the chances he'll grow up to be a, an adult criminal. Just by way of comparison, we spend about $10,000 to educate a kid nationally. But in some states, you know, again, I'm from California, so I tend to tilt that way, but we got up to $225,000 a year per kid, in great part because of the cost of defending against and then remediating in line with litigation. Hmm. And our education spending, which used to be one of the highest in the nation, fell to 8000 and something. And I think you know, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that that's a coincidence. Whereas the evidence-based programs that I've been talking about not only cost you know maybe a tenth of that, they are short-term. You know, they work within a few months, so we're not talking about year after year after year of these expenditures. Talk about some of the the most interesting programs that you discovered, because so far this conversation has been quite disheartening. But um, there <laughs> is sorry. there is hope out there, and there are there are people who are trying to find a better way. There is, and I. On the hope front, I do have to mention perhaps the most positive thing that's happened, which is that there's been a 40% drop in the number of kids we've incarcerated over the past decade. And along with that, I think a real sea change in public opinion. Um, You know, I was just, when you talk to people, 
or survey them. There's really a sense that this desire to lock them away and throw out the key has been replaced by a desire for genuine rehabilitation. So you're asking, I think, what rehabilitates. The bottom line is that relationship rehabilitates. And I think we know this as parents, as people, just from basic common sense. And yet, we respond to misdoing by isolating. But the programs that work are those that rely intensively on relationship. So again, I go back to things like multisystemic therapy, and I know it's a complex sounding name, but it really just involves strengthening existing relationships with family, finding people in the community that a kid can connect to, and creating a positive connection with the caseworker. Uh, Those are the ones where the the data tells us that they work. We're also seeing some really interesting innovations with the use of restorative justice among young people. What is restorative justice? Well, basically, the idea is that when you commit a crime, you have not only hurt a victim, but you've kind of rent the fabric of the community, and it's your responsibility to restore it. Um, so a restorative justice program typically brings a young person together with either his own victim or other victims of crime to really understand the impact of what they've done and then make it up. Uh, There's a program in New York where I heard about a, a guy who had been brutally robbed and beaten by a young man. And what he wanted, because they're very victim-focused, which our overall system is not, what this guy wanted was for the kid to teach him how to defend himself. Hmm. And I, I was told it was a very powerful experience because not only did this kid have to really see what he had done to this guy, he had to, he had, he had to show him how to do it, show him how to inflict pain. And that was really revelatory for him. I met a young man who had, along with a group of kids, because a lot of times adolescent crime is committed in groups, beaten a guy for his iPhone, or maybe it was not not an iPhone yet, but so badly that he sustained permanent physical and brain damage. You know, really serious crime. Uh, And this guy, the victim, wanted to meet one of the people who had done it to him. So a restorative justice practitioner spent a year prepping both parties because this kid was in an adult prison for what he had done. Brought them together, and this young man whom I met when he came out said it was the most profound experience of his life because this person whose family members had had to leave their jobs to care for him, whose life he had just devastated, wanted to know, are you okay? What what happened to you that, that made you do this to me? Hmm. And that sort of that sort of kindness just was transformative. But also seeing the impact of his crime. Because, you know, that's another issue with isolation as an intervention. Not only does it not foster accountability, it really doesn't allow for it. If you take a kid who's committed a really horrible crime like that and lock him up and then, you know, sexually assault him or put him in, mistreat him, he can blame the man. 
You know, right. Suddenly that me. child feels like the victim or that... that, that exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You victimize him, he feels like the victim, and he doesn't come to terms with his own responsibility. And I absolutely think that anybody who hurts another person needs to do that. Unfortunately, we have this misconception that isolating them will encourage or allow them to do that when things like restorative justice work much better. We have an email here that says, I was sent to a juvenile facility in 1996. When I was released a year and a half later, I was glad to be out, but in many ways still think of that place as home. I've even considered buying property in a nearby town. How common is this warped sense of homesickness? Well, you know, I wouldn't call it warped, um, it, but it, but it's that was sad. That was the emailer's question, not mine. I oh. just want to make that clear. <laughs> well, then I take it back because I think he should call his experience whatever he feels it to be. But I, I have to say, I did encounter that. Um, <laughs> if, if he feels it's warped, I don't know if it's a kind of Stockholm syndrome. Mm. But um, in a, for example, in a really well-run facility in Minnesota, a, a young man told me that that was the safest place he'd ever been in his life. And for some kids, that's going to be true if they come from a violent family, a violent neighborhood, uh, kids who've been on their own trying to figure out how to get their next meal. If they are in a well-run, safe facility, they may in fact feel rightly that it's the safest, most comfortable place they've been. But that's tragic in itself, and I think you know it doesn't relieve us of the responsibility of doing something about the conditions that make that so. Let's go back to the phones now at 1-800-933-5372. We have Deanie on the line in Dallas. Hi, Deanie. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to know, um, you know, how can we, like, I mean, just from the community, reach out to these kids? I mean, can we? Is there something yeah. we can do? I'm, I'm so glad that you asked that question. I think there are several levels on which you can do something. The most obvious is politically, that that when you vote, understand the voting record around incarceration issues and make that an important part of, of one's life as a citizen. I think the second thing that we can all do it, without ever setting foot in a juvenile prison is check ourselves when a group of young people of color approaches. And just, you know, are we among the purse clutchers, the street crossers, the elevator shrinkers? Because so many kids talked about that phenomenon of having people fear them even before they were genuinely scary. And, you know, that's a racial issue. It's also an adult use issue. And what that does is, you know, think about... You know, if I say to my kid, you're a liar, and he's not, eventually he's going to say, all right, then I'll just lie to you. Hmm. So we're we're kind of really perpetuating that criminal identity when we treat kids who fit whatever our idea is of the juvenile criminal as if we're afraid of them. The other thing is, you know, if you're in any position to give somebody a job, that's a huge issue because most people will not come near these kids when they get out. And then if you really want to do more, in many places there are community programs that bring people into into these facilities. This Minnesota place that I thought was so great, relatively, 
had more volunteers when I was there than it did kids. So many that there were cottage grandmothers baking cookies and milk for the kids when they came home from school. A program that I was part of and really admire is The Beat Within, which brings people from the community in to lead writing workshops. So there, there's, there are programs like that in a lot of communities, and if there aren't, there's often a chance to connect with kids as they reenter. Um, the other thing is juvenile incarceration is so widespread that most of us do know somebody who's been involved with that system, even if we don't know that we know it, and can reach out to that person or just treat him like anyone else. We haven't talked much about this, but are there significant differences in um, facilities set up for girls and those set up for boys? Um, You know, the differences are not so much in the facilities, although there are issues with girls' needs not being addressed at all because the system was set up for boys. Um, You know, so for example, if a girl comes in pregnant, there's nothing in place in terms of nutrition and things like that. Uh, the, the real difference that I saw was the level of prior trauma is very high among both genders, but among the girls, it's higher and really devastating. You know, for example, you have a lot of girls who have been sexually abused or raped, You have girls who are there for being involved in sort of survival sex work. They come in and they go through multiple pat searches, often in a day. They're watched when they shower. A strip search is not what we think it is. You have to strip naked, squat, cough, and basically allow every orifice to be examined. So for anyone, but for a girl who's been sexually abused, that's tremendously traumatic. And then at the extreme end, one girl told me that she was supposed to get treatment uh, because she had been involved in the sex trade, and that her quote-unquote counselor first made her describe in graphic detail what she had done. I'm sorry, I have to take a step back. She did not tell me this. I read it in a report from another organization but it got into my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was forced first to describe it and then to reenact it with this guy. So the the level of trauma and then re-traumatization, I think, is particularly high among girls. The new book by journalist Nell Bernstein is called Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. Nell, it's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much for making this time for us. Fantastic questions. I really appreciate your having me. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think, and you can contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.